Our scripture text this morning is Revelation chapter 5. There'll be many words that are very familiar at this point in our service, and so grateful to our choir, our praise team, our instrumentalists to preparing us our heart for this scripture text as we have sung and proclaimed the great truths of it, and as we have heard it read and uh, through scripture reading as well, now we'll take a little closer look at the entirety of the chapter, Revelation chapter 5. And um, Revelation is set up in a very specific way and a very specific outline. It's actually, if you look in chapter one of Revelation, it, it gives you the very, uh, uh, a very spelled out outline for the book of Revelation. And you, you see it laid out as you have the first three chapters uh, speaking to present day churches, at least present day for John, the author of Revelation. And then you have chapter four, and chapter 5, which gives us what most call the throne room vision, as John, and you see at the beginning of chapter 4, John is brought into a moment as he's in the spirit, as chapter 4, verse 2 describes, where he gets to see the throne room in heaven. And in chapter 4, it's centered primarily around God the Father, and chapter 5 is centered primarily around God the Son, the Lamb. Uh, who was worthy to be slain. And, um, and so we're looking at chapter 5, and so we'll center around God the Son, Jesus Christ, and his role. But as we look at Revelation, there can be confusion at times. Now, you notice we're not getting to chapter 6 or beyond. That's when the events of the eschaton, and that's just the fancy way of saying the end-time events, that's where you get into the explanation and many different symbols and many different arguments and differing views on what every single verse means. I will leave that for Pastor Luke to get into, but... (laughs) He'll appreciate that, I'm sure. But no, um, but as we, we prepare, that starts to look at the, the end time events, as I said. But chapter 4 and 5 offer that segue, that transition. And it's needed because of the theological truths that it proclaims. So even in chapter 4 and 5, you see a few symbols. And you might have a, a few questions about some of the characters and some of the people who it describes being in the throne room. But I did want to just lay out the scope of the message this morning to know that the, the questions I want to answer looking at this text today is what does this tell me about Jesus and how does that impact my life today? And there's times where you could study and you could do a very deep dive and even into chapters four and chapter five in Revelation and, and, and discuss and, and talk about who each of the people are, what uh, all of the descriptions of the angels mean, and, but we simply don't have the time. And so the scope of the message this morning for chapter five is what does this tell me about Jesus And how does that impact my life today? Specifically, as we look ahead to next week when our service will center around the Lord's Supper, the text of the message, um, as Luke will be back with us, and the, um, the, the recognition of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, I believe this text sets the stage for not just a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, but the scriptural evidence that he is the only one worthy to offer his life 
as our substitute on the cross, and that Christ Jesus is God's plan for redemption for mankind. And so this week, I hope, prepares our heart for the message that will be brought next Sunday and the, the entirety of the service as we look at the Lord's Supper even in detail. But our text today from Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, even though we have sung it and we have heard it read, I would like to read through the entirety of the chapter since it is a narrative and it is describing a specific event that happened to John, who is the author of Revelation. So if you'll read along with me in Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Would you pray with me? Father God, this is your word. You have given it to us that we might know you that we might follow you, and that we might be shown how our need for a Savior, and this text shows us that Jesus is our Savior, and he is the only one worthy to be called that. Father God, I pray in this time I might decrease, you might increase. In Christ's name I pray, amen. If there's... There's a few places in Scripture where this might apply, but if there's ever a text where you can just read it, and then the preacher sits down and says, Amen, this might just be it. For the scene that it describes, there's no other word I could think of. It's riveting. It's a scene that's happening in the throne room of heaven, and it's describing, you have emotions, all the emotions of a Hollywood movie with, with a, a problem, a, a need, and, and, and a, a dire situation. 
and then a hero. And perhaps hero is not even the right word to use as it cannot describe who Christ is and what he has done on our behalf. But yet we see it. We see the, the ups and the downs and the emotional investment, not just as we read it, but the emotional investment of the author of Revelation. We start out in verse 1, then as we continue uh, in this throne room discourse, this throne room vision of John, and as the attention goes from God the Father, it starts to shift to God the Son. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. And this scroll, there's many people, again, as I said, there's a lot of different symbols and aspects of this text that you could really uh, uh, talk about and discuss for a long time. And there's even differing views of what this particular, what this scroll perhaps means. But there's a couple things we know about this scroll. The first, and this is undeniable, it's important. It's important, and we know it's important because it's described as being in the right hand, which would have been thought of as the hand of authority. It's being held by the person who's sitting on the throne in the place of authority. And we know that it's filled with as much information, with as much content as it can possibly hold, because it's written on the front and on the back. You'll notice that many of the books in the New Testament are of similar length, and that's because of simply a very practical way, uh, a, a practical reason, and that's the size of the scroll it would be written on. And if you got to one side of the scroll, it wasn't a matter of just doing a page break on your computer and getting to the next page and printing it out. You had to actually turn over the scroll and start writing it on the other side in order to get more content. And so we know that this scroll is important because it's filled with as much information and content as it can. It's being held in the right hand, the hand of authority, being held by the person on the throne in the place of authority. And not only that, but we hear that it has seven seals. Roman law would allow only an official legal document to have, have seven seals with seven witnesses. And many times this was used in, in the context of, a, of some type of last will and testament or uh, uh, something that would be describing an inheritance that someone would be receiving after uh, a family member or someone they were close to had died. And, so you, you, and then to be opened, it would have to have the, the same type of process to be open and officially ratified or seen as a legal document. So we see all of that to say all of the, whatever this scroll is and the content of it, it is very important and crucial to the rest of the book of Revelation. And in saying that from chapter six on, we start to see the description of those events that will happen in the end times. And so this document, this scroll is very important and opening it is crucial to the completion of the book of Revelation. And so as the strong angel proclaims in verse 2, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Notice, I like how the Bible describes it as a strong angel. This is not a cheery cherub. This is a strong angel. This is proclaiming with a great voice. This is an authoritative angel saying, who is worthy to open the scroll and break it seals. And this is where the situation begins to look dire. The situation begins to look hopeless, if you will, in, in heaven. And because in verse 3 it describes, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Now imagine this. No one no one in a place that's filled with the patriarchs, the prophets, the apostles of all the saints before, no one is worthy. Not Abraham, nor Moses, not the prophet Isaiah, 
Not Daniel, not Ezekiel, not even King David, not even James or Peter or Paul. No angel or created being. No one is found worthy. No one is found worthy to open this scroll that is directly connected to the culmination of God's great plan, God's redemptive plan for humankind and for world history as they're looking. And we see there is no one worthy to open this scroll. And at this point, the author of the book of Revelation begins to get emotionally involved with what's happening and what he's seeing play out in front of him. You've done that before, right? You're watching a movie and it takes you a few minutes to determine, am I going to like this or not? Maybe it's a TV show and you have to watch the first episode or the the first few episodes. You say, am I going to like it? But at some point, something clicks and you're hooked, right? You're, you've got to watch the rest of it, and, and, and you've got to see whatever the next episode is or whatever the, the end of the movie is. You're hooked. Well, imagine that, but on the scale of redemptive history and on the scale of God's great plan for people and, and, and his redemptive plan for people, and the author John, he's, it says he began to weep loudly. He's emotionally attached at this point because he realizes what's happening is important. And if there's not a resolution, if there's not an answer to this problem that has been identified in heaven, he knows the circumstances are dire and without hope. Verse 4, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So as we look at the first four verses, we see a very important truth, and that is that he is worthy, Christ Jesus. We'll see that in verse 5. But we are not. We are not. So much of part of the Christian life is recognizing who we are, but also who we are not and what we cannot do on our own and recognizing that in the Christian life, we cannot do it on our own. We are reliant fully on the work of Christ on the cross and his empowerment in our own life. And so John, he begins to weep loudly, very literally. This is not just a one-time little cry that he gets out and, and, and he's done and he's over it. It's weeping and weeping that continues on. It's intense weeping because he realizes the situation seems hopeless. And at this point, there's a need. need does not even seem like the word that we should use to describe it because there, the circumstance is so dire and so without hope. But in verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. One of the elders has stood up and, and, and he said, Weeping shall end. The the situation is no longer dire. The situation is no longer without hope. Think about it in your own life as you experience battles in your life, whether physical or so often spiritual, spiritual battles that are happening in your life and it seems hopeless. Maybe it's the person in in, in your family who you pray for that they would come to, to, to know Christ Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Maybe it's the crisis that you're experiencing that, that whether it's, it's health or financial or relationships, but it's becoming a faith crisis in your own life because you're questioning God where is the hope what is my situation why is it so dire but then as we look across and in this plan of redemptive history we see the hope is found in one and one alone 
It is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. What we see is descriptions of how Jesus has been described in messianic prophecies throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10, we see as Jacob blesses his son, he, sons, he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. We see Jesus described as this, the lion of the tribe of Judah, but then also the root of David from Isaiah chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, and then verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious you see the lamb from the tribe of judah the line of david he is the source of all blessings all blessings that we know of god and in his word the source of all blessings comes in christ jesus and he is the one he is worthy because of what he has done and what he has accomplished he is worthy because of him fulfilling that messianic prophecy but also giving of his life on our behalf. I love it's verse six here as it says, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. And we could stop right there and we know the lamb of God speaking of Christ Jesus. But look at those next few words. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Think on that. Picture that in your mind. The lamb is standing victorious, showing he has not been defeated, yet bearing the marks of sacrifice on our behalf. If that, <laughs> if that doesn't impact your worship, <laughs> if that doesn't impact your praise, I don't know what will. The lamb bearing the marks of his sacrifice on our behalf but yet standing victorious. That's who he is. The word lamb is used 29 times in the book of Revelation. There is one time it's used to refer to the Antichrist, but 28 times it's used to refer to Christ Jesus. We know who this is talking about. And throughout Scripture, we see examples of this sacrificial lamb. In Genesis 22, 8, what was provided as a substitute. In 22, 8, as the ram would be a lamb some 2,000 years later. In Exodus 12, 5, the, in the Passover, it is the blood of a lamb without blemish that's used. In Isaiah 53, 7, we see that the suffering servant would be led as a lamb to slaughter even John 1:29, as he sees Christ Jesus, he says, behold the Lamb of God. You see the blood of the Lamb at Passover it transitions us to the Lamb on the cross at the end of the Gospels and eventually the Lamb on the throne in Revelation. Jesus is the Lamb and he is the one with all power, seven horns, the perfection number of strength and power. He is omnipotent, seven eyes, the ability to see in perfection. He is omniscient and the seven spirits, the complete spirit of God. He is omnipresent, all those characteristics of the Lamb, but yet he's the one worthy of our worship. He's the one who's bearing the marks of his sacrifice on our behalf. He is worthy because of what he has accomplished. 
And it's not just that he's worthy, okay? It, it, it could be that he was worthy, but he wasn't able. Or it could be that he was worthy, but he wasn't willing. But you see, the lamb who is worthy is also able. And the one who is able is also willing. Verse 7 tells us, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. He took the scroll knowing he is the one who could open that scroll and to set into, uh, into a course of events that would bring about the redemptive history and the redemptive plan of God Almighty. You see, he is able and he is willing. The one who is worthy to open the scroll, the one who holds the keys to life and death, who holds the keys to all that will happen in the culmination of God's grace plan for earth he is with us today he is the one who in john 16 he says i have said these things to you that in me you may have peace that lamb who is worthy he promises us peace in war in the world you will have tribulation but take heart i have overcome the world and he reminds us even at the end of matthew's gospel that he is with us always even to the end of the earth <laughs> that same lamb reminds us in john 14 let not your heart be troubled you believe in God, believe also in me, and that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that same land, even in John 15, calls us friends. He calls us friends. Yes, the lamb standing as though he had been slayed, bearing the marks of his sacrifice on our behalf. He wants a personal relationship with you. And he wants you to know that he's with you through temptation, through anger, through addiction, through relationship issues, through financial concerns, through medical diagnosis, through family concerns, whatever it is you're going through. He wants you to know he is with you, and there's only one response we can have to that. You see, what do you do when you come into this truth of who Christ is and his worthiness and his willingness and his ability to take this scroll and to set into the uh, course of action? the events of redemptive history what do you do what is your response and you would think that that maybe there's a checklist of things we need to do in response to that maybe there's just it's so complicated how what he did for us is just so profound how do we respond see there's only one response there's no thought provided there's no you see in the text here you're going to see as we read through there's no section of let me think about how i respond to this great truth because based on his worthiness based on what he has done on our behalf he is worthy of our praise at verse eight and when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Now, if you'll allow me just a moment, this illustration, I realize, does not connect fully. This does not connect fully with the worship that's happening in the throne room of heaven, but it's the only earthly comparison I can think of. I'm a fan of of live sporting events. I I enjoy it. I I like, uh, I'll watch, I won't watch baseball on TV, but I'll watch baseball in person. Yeah, I enjoy it. I'm not, but I'm just, I I like football. I like being in the environment where there's a group of people and they're cheering or or maybe booing if, if depending on what side, how the score is going, but they're, they're all collectively, you know, cheering for this team and support. And, and the bigger the crowd, the, the more exciting it can be. 
But there's this, this phenomenon, if you will, in live sporting events, and I don't even know if there's a word to describe it, but where something's happening on the field or on the court that's so crucial to what's going to happen in the game that there's like a collective... You know, where you're watching. It, maybe it's in football, where, where there's a, a Hail Mary thrown at the end of the football game, and the ball's in the air. You don't know how it's going to come down. The entire, you could have thousands in a stadium, and it's silent because they're wondering what is about to happen. And, and I can remember a football game I was at several years, about 13 or 14 years ago. It happened. It came down to the last second. It, it's what you desire in a game, you know, that you're on the edge of your seat. You're wondering what's going to happen. And it came down to a Hail Mary at the end of the game. And, and I remember, I can picture it in my mind, the ball in the air, thinking there's no way they're going to catch that ball. And, and, and then the ball starts to come down, and there's probably, you know, seven or eight guys from both teams fighting for that ball in the end zone. And the entire crowd's looking, wanting to know what's going to happen. And maybe they're looking for the referee to say, you know, touchdown or, or incomplete pass. So you're, you're looking. But in that moment, when the referee puts his hands up and says, touchdown, and your team is winning, there's a split second where it goes from silence to the loudest noise, a, a pop of noise that happens almost instantaneously. This is what I picture in heaven. The situation is dire and seems hopeless. Who's going to open this scroll? You see the lamb who's standing as though he has been slain. You see him and he's going and maybe he's taking those steps up. Now, this is my sanctified imagination. So give me a little bit of grace here. They're looking and the lamb's taking steps towards the throne. And they're wondering, what's he going to do? What is going to happen? And the second he takes that scroll, what happens? Boom, the praises of heaven. The song comes out. It says, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, a harp, an instrument of praise. And, and the golden bowls full of incense, this is the prayers of the saints. As we do, we worship with our praise and our prayers. They are worshiping him. And they sang a new song. What do we do when we praise him? You know, we, 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 we sing to him. We sing how worthy he is. We sing about who he is. But when we're singing, notice that our songs, our songs of worship and praise are talking not about ourselves, but talking about him. We are proclaiming his worthiness, and in essence, we are saying it is not about us. And that's what this, this first group of, of songs, the song of the saints in verses 8 through 10 is talking. In verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. It's nothing about them. It's all about him. Uh, worthy are you to open, take the scroll, open its seals. You were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people and nation. You see, they start singing this song that not only talks about the hope of redemption, but the scope of redemption. It's not limited to just us in this room. It's not limited to just a few. It goes beyond to every person, every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. And he makes us a kingdom of priests as we are co-heirs with Jesus. We have the song of the saints. And then as we continue on to verse 11 and 12, we 
have the song of the angels. Now, this describes a scene. We, we, oftentimes we equate our worship time with reverence and we equate reverence with silence and not talking and not saying much and not moving much. But let me tell you, the most reverent worship is happening right here and there's thousands and thousands of angels and I, I, they were not quiet. Okay, they weren't whispering. We've already said, that's why said, this isn't a cheery cherub just singing in a nice peaceful voice. This is a strong, mighty angels proclaiming the worthiness of who he is. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels. You know, if I stood up here singing, it wouldn't sound very good. But if our choir, who knows how to sing, or our praise team, who knows how to sing, came in, that would sound a little bit better. I Just take my word for it, it would. <laughs> but here's what happens. There's a few singing, and then you have more coming in, the angels and the angels. They're singing, proclaiming power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And you could spend a while just digging into each of those words, but it's simply describing how great God is, how worthy The lamb is of all of those aspects in our worship. You see, our worship requires a response. When we come into contact with who Christ is, we can't just sit on our hands and be quiet or it can't just lull us to sleep. There should be an excitement. And I know that's demonstrated depending on you and who you are. It's demonstrated in different ways. I'm not saying there's a very specific way that it should be demonstrated, but it requires a response on our behalf. There's a connection when we see who he is and what he's done. And not only is it limited just to the songs of the saints or the song of the angels, but we move on and we see it's actually all of creation. That's proclaiming his worthiness. Verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Romans 8.21 tells us that creation actually longs for the day when it will be. As 8.21 tells us that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Imagine that, the entire universe, all of creation, praising the Lamb of God. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. One day the lamb will break the seals. And and, and this is a discussion for a different day, but all I can say is it will put into motion the events that will lead to his coming. He holds the keys. He is the only one worthy to set into motion the events that will bring culmination to God's redemptive plan for history. And we sang a song earlier is he worthy? And it asks these questions. I love those questions. And I love how we did it. I, I love how, how, and how Richard described it, to take a moment and meditate on the, the truths of God's word that are being sung and then our response to that. These simple questions. Do you feel the world is broken? I think that's obvious. Do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Is all creation groaning? Is a new creation coming? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? Is he worthy? And what power 
in those two words. He is. He is. Revelation 5, 6 tells us that the lamb, worthy of opening the scrolls, was standing as though it had been slain. Even in his power, holding the keys to life and death, holding the keys to past, present, and future, he bears the marks of his atoning death on the cross. As we've already seen, the one who is worthy was also able and willing to take on the punishment for my sin and for yours. The scene in heaven showed a situation that was dire, but you know, our situation is dire too. Apart from Christ, there's no more dire of a situation. Our sin makes us the exact opposite of Jesus, the Lamb of God. It it makes us unworthy. We do not deserve the blessings we have, yet God in his great mercy showed us love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. Jesus paid it all. Again, I won't sing, but a few words from that song. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat that Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. Our only response is to give of our life to him, to respond in obedience. Oh, what beautiful truth to know that in our sin, as unworthy as it made us, as stained as our sin made us, that the one who is worthy gave of his life that we might have life in his name. So today I can tell you by the truth of God's word, no matter how dire your circumstance may seem, no matter how messed up you think your present is because of your past, there is one who died to give you hope. Christ Jesus freely gave of his life for you. And our response, as the hymn says, is to give him our all. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so grateful for your word and the truths it proclaims about the work of Christ Jesus, who he is, and the impact that has on our lives, Lord. Help us now to respond as you would lead us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.